0: We're in the Gospel of Luke to learn what the kingdom of God is like. That's the question that we've set before ourselves as we've entered into this uh, study. What is the kingdom of God like? And we're working our way through the Gospel. We're in Luke chapter 3. I invite you to find Luke 3 in your Bible. The words uh, of our text are also going to be on the screen. If you're watching online, they'll be online as well. We have called uh, Luke 3 a uh, preparation for learning about the kingdom of God. John the Baptist is the, the, the centerpiece. He's the main figure of, of Luke chapter 3, at least at the beginning. And his role, of course, is to prepare people uh, for the coming ministry of Jesus. Uh, we see that that's made explicit in the gospel Luke's, or excuse me, John's role to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Can you imagine having the role of preparing other people to meet Jesus? That was John's role. And we started last Sunday by looking at his preaching, the substance of his message to them. We We just talked about the voice of the prophet, and we focused on his preaching, and today we're shifting our focus to what's the people's response to his preaching. When they went out to hear him, what did they think? What did they do? What did they say? What exactly happened? And uh, where do their actions intersect with ours? So that's, that's our particular interest today, as we're in the middle part of Luke 3, the response of the people to John the Baptist. The text is verse 10 through verse 22. Let's read the text first, and then I'd like to pray, and then we will notice the two responses that we see from the people, okay? All right, let's stand in honor of God and his word, if you're able. Luke 3.10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Oh, Father, these are wonderful things. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would would come in such a way and apply these things in such a way that you would continue to do this work on your people that we know as sanctification, where having already been made holy and declared holy, you continue your work on us progressively over time to conform us to the image of your beloved Son, I just thank you, Father, that we don't only get to believe in Jesus, that we get to become like Jesus. What glory you've given us. And so I just pray that you would take uh, the little offering that I'm bringing and multiply it out many times over uh, for your people here by the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to make us more like the Son whom you love and increase our joy in doing that. And we ask in his wonderful name, Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Please be seated. The first thing that we see from people in terms of their response, and we're just looking at two responses that the people make to John The first thing that we see from them is that they ask a natural question. That's what we see happen in verse 10. If you were able to be here last Sunday, you remember we we covered the first part of the account of John the Baptist. And we noticed how he was bringing them this message where it was necessary for them to repent and bear fruit. He brought a really urgent message to them of repentance and fruit-bearing. And very naturally, the people who are listening want to know a little bit more about that. They want a little bit more in terms of practical application. How exactly does that work out in my life? So I hear you, John, you're telling us that we need to bear fruit, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Okay, tell us what that looks like. They just point blank ask him, what shall we do? And he's very happy to let them know what they should do. We see him dealing with these three different groups of people that that come to them. He deals with them each individually. He patiently instructs them, each group, on what they should do. The crowds have a question for him. That's the first group. And then we see the tax collectors come, and, and, and they ask him, well, what about us? What should we do? And then the soldiers even approach him, wanting to know, and we, what shall we do? And John answers each group just a little bit differently. But there is a common denominator in each answer. Here's the common denominator in in every answer. We could summarize it this way. Whatever advantage you have, is to be used for the advantage of others. That's what he tells each group. That's the general statement that he makes to each group, and he puts it into terms for their particular occupation or stage in life. Whatever advantage you enjoy in life, you are to use that for the advantage of others. And so, in the case of the crowds, hey, do you have excess clothing? Are you fortunate enough? Are you blessed enough to have two tunics or extra food? Share with those who don't have that. Share with the person who doesn't have clothing and doesn't have enough food. Having extra clothing and extra food is an advantage How can you turn that into an advantage for other people? Notice how that's also true for the tax collectors. Boy, they held a a big advantage in life. They had contracts with Rome to collect a certain amount from their particular district. And then they could also charge a premium and keep that for themselves. And they charged much more than they needed to live on. Of course, they took advantage of that role. And they sucked everything they could out of it. Of course they did. That's just being a human. Like, I've got this advantage, and this position in life. I'm going to get whatever I can out of it. So I'm going to collect for Rome. And I can charge a premium and line my pockets. And so they built their great wealth on the backs of their fellow Jewish people. And so, of course, they were despised. But then they asked John what they should do, and his response to them is to use their advantage for the advantage of others. He tells them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Wow. Think about the loss of income. Think about all that income that they had been collecting and how that was just going to go away. But now think about the benefit to the people in their district. Think about their little district, that group of homes that they were in charge of collecting from. Think about the huge benefit to them if their tax collector, that guy who they're used to seeing come to their door, if he has spent his free time going down to the river and listening to John and comes back a changed Man, and now you have this pious, repentant, changed tax collector, and that's your guy in your district. What a huge advantage for your little group of homes and your families. His advantage in life just made your life a lot better. Now, finally, notice how it's true for the soldiers. Boy, what a, what a position of power they had. This is verse 14. Power and authority. They are, they're the most powerful of the three groups represented here. And boy, they could use that power and authority. Apparently, this was common in practice to extort money from people. Threaten them with physical violence. Or, hey, I'm going to make a public accusation about you if you don't give me this money that I want. Well, they could do just about anything that they wanted. They... Think about what they did. They turned power into money. All this power and authority that they had, they were able to turn that into money. Hey, they were, they were at an advantage, so why not use it to your full advantage? All the other guys were doing it. And John tells them, no, you be different you be content with your wages. Be content with what you earn. Not what you can extort from people. And a group of soldiers that takes that message to heart and bears that kind of fruit. It's going to be a huge advantage to lots and lots of people and vulnerable families and powerless people underneath their authority and their power. That requires them to lay down the benefits of their advantage, their advantage in life for the advantage of other people that they come into contact with. So John counsels each group in its own way to use whatever advantage they enjoy. To the advantage of others. And, of course, we know that we humans are likely to do the opposite. We abuse our advantage. We think, okay, where do I have an advantage? I'm going to use that for all it's worth to take advantage of other people. John says, do the opposite. Take your advantage and turn it into an advantage for others. So let's think about the significance of that for us for a moment. And I want to invite yourself, invite you to ask yourself these questions. Where is my advantage in life? Where am I holding an advantage? Where and in what way do I hold power? And what would it look like for me to take my advantage... And actually use that for the advantage of other people. Other people who don't hold that advantage. If we ask the question, what would God like to see from his people? His people that are desiring to represent the kingdom of God. This is the answer Individual Christians from all walks of life, all stations of life, whatever their occupation is, using their small or great measure of power to the advantage of others. See, this is scalable. It works for the the person of the most modest means and the person of the greatest means whether you're at kind of the bottom of the economic chain or the top. Everyone's doing what they can. You got an extra tunic? Great. Share that. Are you at the top of the food chain, the soldier? You got all this power? Here's what you can do. Tax collectors, you're in the middle, so you do this. Everyone do their own small part as they're able. That's the fruit that God wants to see from his people who are desiring the kingdom. And that, it cuts right across all of our cultural Christian expectations. Not only cuts across our, our human desires, but also our cultural Christian expectations. Because let me, let me ask you another question. This one's a little bit harder, but this is a great question for the church to meditate on and to sit for a long time and think about. Here's the question. Do we think more about gaining political power than we do about using the power that we already have. Do we think more about strategizing on how we can gain and maintain power in the world and political power than we do strategizing and thinking about how to use the power that we have because that's been the MO for a long time to think that the pathway to success here is to gain and maintain political power at any cost and this passage is a great rebuke to that mindset because when the people come and ask John what shall we do what kind of fruit are we supposed to bear if we're going to be repentant his answer is not you need to gain a little bit more power or you need to try to maintain the power you have. His answer is all about using whatever they already have. Wherever you hold an advantage and hold power, use it to benefit others. That's the pathway to success. That's the mindset of those whose concern is the kingdom of God because that's the mindset of Christ. The one who held and holds all power. And yet, what did he do with it? He used it to the full advantage and benefit of others, of the needy, of us. So it's a great question for us all to go home with, from the richest to the poorest. You've got an advantage somewhere. Someone needs your voice. Someone needs your time. Someone needs your resources. Leverage it for someone else. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's very different from the kingdom of man, isn't it? So, the first thing we notice about their response is that they ask a natural question and they get some answers, and that's helpful to us in learning about the kingdom of God. Second thing we notice about their response this begins in verse 15. They ask a natural question. That's the first thing. The second thing is they focus on the natural object. That's the second part of their response. They ask a good question. It's a very natural question. And then they very naturally begin to to focus on John. He becomes the very natural object of their focus. It's very understandable, isn't it? They were, according to this verse 15 questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John is taking up their emotional energy. John is filling their thoughts. All the questions are about him. Who is John? Is this the Christ? Now, stop and put yourself in their position for just a moment, okay? Put yourself in the position of someone who's been out listening to John at, at the Jordan. The people who had been listening to him faced two Great dangers at this point. In between verse 14 and verse 15, the people who are there listening face two great dangers that we will be able to identify with. Okay? The first danger is putting confidence in their own good works. Because all the talk so far has been about repentance and bearing fruit. Okay? Gotta do this, and you've got to do that, and you've gotta give your stuff to other people, and it's it's all been about repentance and bearing fruit. It's it's a danger at this point of placing confidence in their own good works. And the other danger, obviously, according to verse fifteen, is the danger of pinning all of their hopes on John. That's beginning to happen, and it's very natural that it's happening. And if we step back and look at that, we realize that that is not the gospel at all, right? What we see right now in this little package is not the gospel. Placing confidence in our own good works and having all the focus beyond John the Baptist, that's not the gospel, okay? So what we see happen from verse 15 on down through verse 22 are three things that correct all of that thinking. There are three things that happen in rapid succession that take, and here's the effect of all three, they take all the focus off of John and they put it squarely on Jesus where it belongs. So we're looking at this from a really high altitude and saying, okay, there are three things here that serve as a corrective where all the focus is going to go from John, where it shouldn't be, over to Jesus, where it should be. And so, what are those three things? The first thing is that there's a a redirection by John himself. That's verses 16 through 18. There's a, a redirection by John. John just flat out tells people that he's not the one that they should be focusing on. He's not the one that they should pin their hopes on. Someone else is coming, and it's him that they need to be looking to. And if we look carefully, we see that he has three points to his argument. He presents three pieces of evidence for why that should be the case. The one who's coming has a greater baptism, the one who's coming is a greater person, and the one who's coming has a greater role. That's a summary of his presentation and how he is redirecting the people from himself to Jesus. Greater baptism, greater person, greater role. Now, the baptism component is by by far the hardest one to understand. John is contrasting his water baptism with Jesus' baptism by the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the contrast. That's the greater baptism that, that Jesus brings is by Holy Spirit and fire as opposed to by water. Now, we could spend a long time there. I'm just going to share two things regarding this baptism component that hopefully will be, will be helpful in understanding what John is talking about when he says baptism with Holy Spirit and fire versus water baptism, okay? So, two things. First of all, the reference to Jesus' baptism is very likely and almost certainly just a reference to one baptism and not two. So, John is not saying that Jesus brings two baptisms, one by the Holy Spirit and another one by fire. The reference is to one baptism, Baptism, And there are contextual and grammatical reasons for, for saying that. But the reference is likely to just one baptism and not two. And here's the second thing. And you can, if you make marginal notes, you can write down Isaiah 4, verses 4 and 5 at this point. Because when John makes that statement about baptism by Holy Spirit and by fire, he is, is likely linking Jesus' baptism back to what has been foretold in Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4, verses 4 and 5. That passage is is obscure for most of us. It's a passage where God is talking about what he will do for Israel to cleanse them so that they can dwell with him in the land. God himself will cleanse his people. It will be a spiritual cleansing. Those verses in Isaiah make reference to cleansing by means of a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. And the idea here is that in the future, God will cleanse his people on the inside so that they may dwell with him. Because God cannot have sin in his presence. We know that that's true. We can see the parallels to ourselves already, that we need a spiritual cleansing by the Holy Spirit in order to be in God's presence. We know that that's true. And that's most likely what John is making reference to, to this Perfect cleansing that Jesus will bring, not just of water that washes the outside of the body, but to wash us clean on the inside of our sins. Okay, we haven't answered every question about that baptism reference, but hopefully we've done enough to get the general idea, okay? And in any case, we get John's larger point that Jesus' baptism is greater. It's just one plank in his argument. tells them that the coming one is a greater person than he is. That's also verse 16. John uses this word picture to show us just how much greater the one to come is. says, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. It's a reference to Jesus' greater person. John spells that out a little more in some of the other gospel accounts. Here we we simply get the the word picture of John not being worthy uh, compared to Jesus' great person. And then verse 17, John talks about the greater role that the coming one has. Greater role in God's plan. John's, John's role was just to prepare people. Jesus' role is to judge people. It's the language of judgment that we see there in verse 17 about separating the wheat from the chaff and storing up the wheat and keeping it and destroying the chaff. That's judgment imagery and describes the, the role of Jesus as judge. So those are the planks of John's argument. You need to redirect your attention to the one who is to come because he carries a greater baptism with him. He is indeed a greater person. His role is greater than mine. It's a really good argument that John makes and don't forget this is easy to overlook but don't forget the simple fact that John is the one who's making the argument and he's got everything to lose that counts for something too he has this huge following to lose and he's the one pointing people to go to Jesus and if John himself is making the argument, it must really be true. Because who shuts down a thriving ministry? Who takes their own ministry and, and shuts it down and starts sending people away? Unless it's really true. Unless it's John the Baptist and the person that you're pointing to is Jesus. So that's the first thing. There's a, a redirection by John away from himself toward Jesus. The second thing that happens, which serves to move all the focus from Don from John to Jesus is that John is simply taken out of the picture. He's doing his best to send people away, but what if they don't go? <laughs> well, that's not a problem because John is removed. He's arrested by Herod. He'd been critical of Herod because Herod has t- had taken his brother's wife as his own wife, and John had been outspoken about the wickedness of that, and so he has John arrested, and he eventually has him killed, and that seems tragic. But John had fulfilled his purpose, hadn't he? John didn't miss one moment of public presence that God wanted him to have. He fulfilled his role beautifully, to prepare people to meet Jesus. And he, he did it. And it will be the same with you. That will be your story too. We will play our role, whatever that role is. And then God will remove us. However and whenever. And however and whenever we are removed, we will not have missed one moment Of public presence that God wanted us to have to testify to his son. It might seem tragic to some people, but we will not have missed one thing that God wanted us to do, to point to Jesus. And so God removes John from the scene through the wickedness of Herod that the spotlight might now be on his son, which is exactly where John wanted it to be anyway. squarely on Jesus. So there's a redirection by John. He does his part. There is a removal by Herod. And finally, the last thing we see is a recognition by God. That's verses 21 and 22. There's a a redirection by John. There's a removal by Herod. Finally, the last thing, there is this recognition by God. After Jesus had been baptized and was praying, we read that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. That's one form that God's recognition takes. The Holy Spirit's visible bodily descent on him like a dove. The Holy Spirit does not descend on any of us in that way. Only this one, that's the Holy Spirit's witness to this one. This is the one. And then secondly, the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's the father's recognition. That's the father's witness that this is the one. See how all three of these things work together to take the focus off of John and place it entirely on Jesus. So, one of the great dangers that we talked about has been avoided, the danger of pinning all of our hopes on John. That's not a problem anymore. The rightful focus is now on Jesus as we move into chapter 4 of Luke's gospel. John's role was just to prepare people for Jesus. Now, as for this, this other great danger the danger of placing confidence in our own good works, there's something that helps us avoid that danger too. And it wasn't just those people back there who were in danger of placing confidence in their own good works. We have the same problem. And this is gonna be so important for us to have this framework in mind as we move into the rest of Luke's gospel and think about the kingdom of God because there's so much here about doing good things and serving the poor and selling possessions and giving to the poor. There's so much here. The good Samaritan stopping to help someone in need. There's so much here about what the kingdom of God looks like in action and the things that we do that we can be very tempted to think that that kind of is the kingdom of God, that it's these good things that we do. That if I just share my tunic and I don't, take advantage of people that, you know, that's kind of all that God requires. And there's a large portion of the church that thinks that way. And that's what we're calling a dangerous mindset. And what we see happen at the end of this text is a corrective for that danger too. What What am I talking about? Well, just this one very simple thing, that lots of people were baptized, but only one was pleasing to God. Lots of people were baptized. Only one was pleasing to God. Verse 21, when all the people, that's lots of people, all the people had been baptized. All these people being baptized, entering into repentance and good works, but only Jesus, when he had been baptized. And the Holy Spirit had descended on him. Only he heard the voice of God's approval. You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. And we should all picture ourselves as standing as part of that great crowd on the the bank of the river. All of us together, standing there in our baptism garments, still dripping wet. We're standing there, having been baptized. We're, We're eager for good works. We're so excited to go and do what John's been telling us to do. I'm going to go home and I'm share my stuff and I'm going to try to be a better person. But we're all looking silently at this other one, at this Jesus, and watching as he receives this recognition from God and noticing how we did not receive that recognition after our baptism. And this is the realization that we need to have. I can't please God. On my own. He is the one who pleases God. You know, all of us over here, we're doing the best we can. We're, we're ready to go and we're eager, but we have not been recognized as sufficient in ourselves to please God. That is such a basic realization, but it is the critical realization in your life that your repentance and your baptism and your good works are not enough to earn this seal of approval from God. You can't please God on your own. Have you ever just stopped and understood in the core of your being, I cannot Please God on my own. Can't. That is a, a wonderful and beautiful and true thought because it prepares us to meet Jesus. Until you understand that about yourself, you will never see Jesus for who he truly is. You will approach him as a a moral teacher, a good model, some figure of historical interest. But when you understand, I can't please God on my own, now you are prepared to meet Jesus. Because he is the answer to your problem. Jesus has pleased God He has already lived out the perfect life. No sin. Do you know what that means? It means that the perfect life that pleases God has already been lived out. It's not your job. Jesus did that for you. For you. Because you can't. And you can receive the benefit of that perfect life by trusting him. He gives you his own righteousness as a gift. He gives you his perfect life as a gift. And that is what makes you acceptable to God. No, not only acceptable like a son is acceptable, but loved as a son is loved and loved as a daughter is loved. I want you to know that Jesus has pleased God for you and you can trust him today. You can give your life to him today. He gave his life for you, and he gives it to you. It's a free gift. And this church exists to celebrate the reality that all of the work to please God has already been done. And that's why John's message, John the Baptist's message, that's so full of demands, and is so hard to hear, and is so offensive, that's why John's message according to verse 18 can still be called good news. I don't know if there's anything stranger in all of the scriptures than you can read John's fire and brimstone message and how he confronted people. And then, oh yeah, by the way, it's good news. Yeah, it is good news. Because the life needed to please God has been lived out by Jesus, and we don't have to do it because we can't. We can only believe and receive because Christ has come and God is satisfied and now we may enter the kingdom by repentance and faith. Amen. Thank you so much, Father, that these things are so and that the work is done and I I pray for weary souls trying their best that these... Minutes in this hour would be a time of rest where we can just remind ourselves that the work is done. It's finished. Jesus has done it all and we can't add a thing to it. That the Holy Spirit descended on him and that your voice recognized him as the pleasing one. And how could it be that in your goodness you opened up the door of salvation and that pleasing life and decided to give it to anyone that asks for it? Anyone that humbles themselves to ask for the life in obedience of Jesus is given it without cost. Even though we've done everything to not deserve it. And that's called grace. Grace. And it's the most beautiful thing that we know. How we thank you in Jesus' name.